hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. For people who've listened to this podcast for years, you know, I, I made a decision when I started becoming a screenwriter when I decided to write. You know, when I was in the music, I don't know if you know, I was in the music business for a long time and I, what happened was I started becoming competitive and, and hated. I, music was everything I cared about. And then I got really competitive and I realized I was no longer a fan of this thing that I loved. And when I started book, you know, writing the first screenplay, I, I actually consciously wrote down for myself, stay a fan. And the rewards of staying a fan are so great. And I am just an unabashed fan of yours. Your work has meant a, a tremendous amount to me. And so I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk today. What a thing to say. Thanks very much. I'm a big fan of yours. Uh, and uh, it's great to be on the podcast. So my guest today is Aaron Sorkin, certainly one of the great screenwriters uh, who ever picked up a pen and also a director and a producer and a playwright. Here's where I have a couple ideas about how to frame this conversation. And I'm going to do it in a bit of an Aaron Sorkin way in a little while. But first, I, I've heard your story about discovering that you were a writer. And, and you've told it a lot, so I don't want to tell the whole thing here. But did you know before the moment that you were alone in that apartment and other people were, were out and you had nothing to do? You've often said you felt an incredible kind of confidence. And uh, the next day you read to people what you'd written. But did you know that you had some kind of superpower? Did you know that there was something inside of you that was somehow not being expressed? Yeah, uh, I did. That's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, and it, it was simply this. Um, when I wrote dialogue, uh, the, the rhythm of dialogue, the reason for dialogue, uh, it, it all made sense to me. I was uh, going to have to do 10,000 hours of practice, but, but I was pretty sure if I did, I, I, I thought it was something I could get good at. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the deeper I got into it, the more years uh, that I had under my belt, uh, the more I understood story, uh, the more uh, I understood the difference. And it is a thin line uh, between good dialogue and aggressively obnoxious dialogue. I uh, so yeah I, I you know uh be a fan is right and I am a fan I'm a big fan I'm also uh, I encourage young screenwriters uh, when I got a chance to talk to them to be a diagnostician too when you see a movie when you see an episode of television uh and you don't like it don't just shrug it oh that sucks um Try to figure that that's fine for your friends, but for you, you should think about why it didn't work. Uh, what was it about it you didn't like? Same thing for when you love uh, something. I'll watch things over and over and over again to try to demystify the magic trick because the first time I'm seeing it, I think, oh, God, I can't do that. I have no idea how yeah. he or she just did uh, uh, what they did. That is a superpower, uh, and I don't have it. The more I watch it, uh, it doesn't get less fantastic for me, but suddenly I I see how they did it. I, I see what the magic trick is, whether I'm capable of doing it or not. At least I have brought it down to earth. At least it's mortal for me now. That that makes a lot of sense, um, especially the part of, of, of an awareness. There may still be a gulf. There may still be a gap between what one can do and what one identifies as happening. But the mere identification of it maybe bridges it slightly, right? It gets you some of the way there. Though sometimes, sometimes like when I was talking to Paul Schrader, sometimes I do think it's like, uh, the Buddha's kiss and actually it can't you know sometimes I'll watch a Paul Schrader film and I'll think all I could get out of that is the Buddha's kiss on the forehead and and it's beyond uh it's magic uh, but it's very rare right yeah very rare uh look uh take uh super pumped okay uh uh your work yes I love super pumped I've seen it thank you several times uh now and I think the, the, and the magic trick in that uh, that I want to learn are, are the decisions of what to dramatize, uh, that this is going to be a good story, this is going to be a good story. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to pick out those things. 
Well, that's incredible to hear that you watch it a couple times. Thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah, but the same thing, you know, uh, I think about the scene in, in Jobs with Jeff Daniels and, you know, the chairs. And that is one of my favorite scenes. And understanding, you know, I went back and read the Isaacson book last year. And I'm really, I wanted to ask you about that. So how did you boil down that? We'll get back to the other questions, but let's look at that as an instance. How did you decide that Scully and Jobs, that scene was going to be that central, that moment. Um, and how did you make the decision? Because reading the book, yeah, fucking hate Scully. You, you have, I read the book and I have no sympathy for Scully. And watching your movie, I have a tremendous amount of understanding of how Scully saw the world. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'll try. And, and it was a job was a few years ago. But look, my big problem uh, once I took on Steve Jobs was uh, I didn't get it. Uh, okay. I didn't get what, why is this guy such a genius? Uh, what is it that he did exactly that we should have rounded corners um, uh, on the iPhone? That's, <laughs> that's what did it. Uh, what, like, what about the people who put a computer inside of this? Uh, yeah. And so, A, I decided why not dramatize that, uh, uh, that very thing? Because in meeting, well, I, and when I started Steve Jobs, Steve had passed away already. But other people who were alive, like Waz. Um, and in talking to Waz, uh, and, and Waz, Waz isn't able to communicate that well. What you, you'll ask right. him something. And he will talk to you for a half hour about, you might as well be talking in Mandarin. Uh, you can't understand what he's saying. But yes. it was clear to me that that Steve Wozniak held some resentment toward Steve Jobs because Steve Jobs, for exactly the reason I just said, because Steve Jobs uh, became the rock star and Steve Wozniak doesn't understand why. So I thought, well, great. That's dramatizable, um, uh, especially given the structure that I've chosen, uh, which is to try to get away with writing a play and making it uh, a movie. Having just right. three scenes uh, uh, in this movie, each of them uh, in real time. I can do that with uh, with the two Steves. Uh, I spent time with Scully uh, and I found him to be more sympathetic in, in person uh, than in right. Walter's book. But even more important, what I'm looking for is the, is the point of friction. Uh, this is about, yes. for me, and I'm sure you've heard this from me before, I, I, I worship at the altar of intention and obstacle. Somebody wants something, something standing in their way uh, of getting it. L let's just... Let's watch the tactics that, that they use to overcome that obstacle. Don't tell the audience who a character is. Show the audience what a character wants. And uh, I could identify that with Jobs and Scully. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm basically looking for things that will help me dramatize what a genius Steve is and what I'm really looking for. Because I, back to where I started, I had such a hard time with, with Steve Jobs, with the person, Steve Jobs at the beginning, not just because I couldn't understand why he, what it was that made him a genius. I also had a terribly hard time liking him uh, simply because of how he treated his daughter, his youngest, his oldest daughter, uh, Lisa. I don't have to like a character uh, uh, to write them. I, I, Mark Zuckerberg uh, is a good example in the social network. When I'm writing them, I can't judge them, okay? I have to be able to defend the character. I have to write the character as if they're making their case to God why they should be allowed into heaven, okay? And I wasn't able to do that. I was able to do that with Zuckerberg. I was able to do that with Nicholson's character back, back in A Few Good Men. And I wasn't able to do that yet, uh, uh, with Steve Jobs, it was Lisa Jobs who helped me uh, find my way there. But 
The answer to your question is pretty much every choice I made in Steve Jobs was uh, of what to dramatize in, in the film was showing him, showing his brain working differently than everyone else's, uh, showing an IQ that was higher than everyone else's and somehow, some way uh, uh, getting us to like him. Right. That, that makes sense. I was, you, I was, I would use a different word, which is I, I've, I picked up when I watch most of your stuff, maybe all, but certain most so much of it. And this comes back to the first question, which is about walking around knowing that in some way you're different, which is in all your things in Steve jobs in particular, and in social network, there's this tremendous desire for people to be seen, truly seen for who they are, truly seen for what they're, their best intentions are to understand why they have the worldview that they have, right? Because that Scully scene is a collision of worldviews. Mm -hmm. uh, and and jo Lisa wants to be seen. Andy wants to be seen. Like the, in, in, they want to be seen. And in Social Network, it's completely the same thing where these people want to be seen for their the, the best part of themselves. And I guess what I want to just ask you is, because it is throughout all of your stuff. And so... Where do you think that comes from? And I guess that's because you're so, to me, as I look at your, the way you tell the narrative of your life, this moment at the typewriter, you suddenly see yourself, you suddenly see who you could be. But I guess what I was trying to ask you is before that moment, did you feel at times like you were walking through the world, not in bloom, and you knew there was a way that you, sh you were supposed to be in bloom and you weren't, or was that not in your head at all? Ah, so that, that's a really interesting way of putting it, Brian. Listen, it's at the beginning, at least, it was a little simpler than that. Uh, we're attracted to things that we're good at. Um, if somebody had thrown me a basketball and, you know, and I could sink a three from anywhere on the court, I'd be doing that. And I just, uh, I felt good writing. And I, I love stories. Uh, and I also think that the, the greatest delivery system ever invented for an idea uh, is, is a story. Now, yeah. once, I, I, once my foot was in the door uh, and I, I was now a professional writer uh, and doing it, it did trouble me a little bit. And I was, in terms of wanting to be a writer, I was only thinking about being a playwright. Uh, I love movies. Uh, I love yeah. television, but that was Mars uh, to me. I, I, I never thought about going sure. to LA uh, and doing that. And I didn't come to LA and do that until uh, my play, A Few Good Men, uh, was the film rights were sold and I was hired to write the screenplay and, and I came out to do that. And I was troubled that I have two posters in my office hanging side by side. One of them says A Few Good Men, uh, a new play by Aaron Sorkin. And the other one says A Few Good Men, a film by Rob Reiner. Right. Uh, and, and my job was exactly the same on both. And uh, I remember uh, going to some kind of early preview or something, I think it was, of the movie. It was in New Jersey. And I was out in the lobby while uh, while the movie was playing and a guy around my age at the time who was selling popcorn, you know, asked me if I worked for the movie and what did I do? Uh, and I said, I wrote the movie. He just yeah. didn't understand what that meant. Um, he said, well, what do you mean? Uh, uh, you wrote the movie. And I, so I, I couldn't figure out a way to say it more plainly than I was saying it. I wrote uh, uh, the movie and he, he didn't get it. And uh, it was clear to me, he, he just never really thought about it before, or he thought Tom Cruise was making it up as uh, as he went along, or maybe the director uh, uh, wrote the movie. But it it you're talking about being seen or not being seen. It troubled me uh, that writers, some of them, were treated of the way they were by audiences. Uh, in in Hollywood. And so it, it became important to me to try to change that for all of us. Well, which you certainly did. Um, 
but suddenly I'm thinking about the way you write about Hollywood. You know, um, one of the most significant moments in my life as a someone watching stuff as a theater goer, movie goer was seeing Speed the Plow. And I was wrote this down before we started talking, right? The last thing was when I, and you know, obviously Mamet and, and uh, you were among the people whose work meant a lot to me as I was starting to, do, as Levine and I together were starting to do this. But Mamet's take on Hollywood as a screenwriter is so much darker. You know, I think Speed the Plow to me is the greatest play about Hollywood, the most accurate. Yeah. But when I, I think agree. about the way you, oh, you agree? Yeah. But the, yeah, I, so I want to ask you how you, how you interacted with that material. Uh, but also, Aaron, it seems to me in, in your stuff about Hollywood, there are always some idealists who are genuinely trying to do something good, but not in a way they're a joke. Like in State and Maine, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, by the whole movie, considers him an absurdity for trying to do something good, right? But in yours, <laughs> in yours. That's right. And in, in The Player, uh, uh, yeah. right? Tim Roth's yes. problem in The Player isn't that he's murdered a writer. It's that he's murdered the wrong writer. <laughs> yes, right. That's, you know, the that that is so baked deeply into the way most, but it seems to me like when you, uh, it seems you still find nobility in the idea of, of like what the final product can do, right? It's capacity to elevate, to make you laugh. And that the pursuit is somehow ennobled by the way you think about when you write about it, both the movie from last year, but also I'm someone who watched every episode of Studio 60 more than one time. Like, so, uh, and Sports Night. So I, I, the, the way you seem to think about this is so different. And I would love to hear you talk about why, because we agree, Speed the Plow is this is this titanically accurate take on, on stuff we've run into. But you seem to refuse to just live in that place when you write about yeah, the business that you live in. Uh, I uh, I refuse to live in that place when I write about the business or most anything else. Um, and we'll we'll talk about the business, but just to be clear, uh, I also uh, listen. I I I tend to write very romantically and idealistically. That's why, uh, you know, watching watching the news last week. Uh, you know, I would have. Yes. CNN on uh, in the background the whole week during the speaker vote curiosity that that, that was going on. And yeah. so many times Me I too, would hear a panelist uh, refer to uh, them talking about how they're going to get out of this. Um, uh, and a panelist would refer to, you know, unless there's a West Wing moment uh, uh, where the Democrats can work uh, with the Republicans. And by West Wing moment, they almost always mean something in a, that would never happen in a million years. I write those things. Hopefully we'll talk about this when we get to Camelot. But I write those things coming from people who don't have superpowers, uh, who aren't superheroes, uh, who are just human. It makes me feel good. Um, it, it makes me feel a couple of inches taller. Uh, it it <laughs> makes me feel like it's possible. In terms of writing about writers in, in Hollywood, if you go to the Writers Guild Awards, it's less this way than it used to be 10 years ago, 15 uh, years ago. You'd go to the Writers Guild Awards and it would be a festival of self-loathing. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, one after another, uh, uh person getting up there and talking about, uh, well, you know, the director, he killed my thing, but I'm a writer, so what are you going to do? And uh, all of this, even the fact that- Well, it comes from, it, yeah, it comes from Pat Hobby, right? It comes from Fitzgerald's Pat Hobby stories. It comes from Ben Hecht writing about it. Like, yeah, of course. This is how writers I, I have always been. And, right. And- also, I should say, I, I've been very, very lucky. I, I haven't had the Barton Fink experience uh, uh, in Hollywood. Maybe it's because my first experience, my first movie, it was based on on this hit play that I had already written. But uh, but I've been able to uh, to avoid that. 
That's part of the reason why I've been able to avoid it. And the other part of the reason is I just won't have it. Um, I, I, yes. I just won't. And back to the Writers Guild Awards. We kind of have, uh, as presenters, we'll have B and C list television stars presenting these awards. Why don't we have writers presenting the awards? I don't understand. Right. I'd love to be handed an award by Tony Kushner. Um, uh, yes. We, we've got to start thinking of ourselves as, as the big deal that we are. I guess the question I have is, and, and look, there's no bigger West Wing fan than me. Maybe my, my son, who, like so many, like a legion of them, ended up working as a speechwriter um, oh, for years and all that stuff. He, it's, it was great for him. He, it, uh, but, you know, as a direct result, obviously, of the, the show, I think a pretty direct result of, of the show. Nobody oh, loves it more thank than... Thank you. Than, thank him. I appreciate that. No, it's really the, the truth. I think it's one of the five greatest shows ever, ever made. You know, for me, it's Mad Men, Sopranos, West Wing, NYPD Blue, and Larry Sanders. Like those are for me, the the best shows ever. Um, yeah, it's an incredible company. Thank you. But it's okay. You're able to see the dark. But this is the thing, and I guess that's what I want to ask about. So when you say romantic, Aaron, it's it's almost as though you've internalized some. It's almost like reads to me not defensive but justifying it i'm more interested in like why you see the world uh, as a writer recognizing okay hollywood will try to fuck you but you can if you are and the politics will try to fuck you but uh, if you truly have noble intentions and you're willing to go through the muck you can drag yourself out the other side of it have you just always looked at the world that way or is it that your life experience showed you that or is it that you want to be instructive in that way i think and uh, the first play i ever saw um uh, i was five years old and my parents took me to see man of la mancha on broadway uh yep. so my first protagonist was don quixote and right. I, I feel like being quixotic is the only way to live. Um, I, it just seems very normal to me. Uh, and even if I can't be quixotic in life, I can be quixotic on paper. Uh, by the way, as an audience member, I enjoy cynical stuff like Speed the Plow. Uh, I really do. But as a writer, uh, I am. there is a magnetic pull uh, back to fundamental goodness. And that is not always helpful as a writer. And it's particularly unhelpful writing television, writing series television. You know, I work with Tommy Shlami, uh a lot, right? I, I'm, you know, yes. partners on sports. It's great director, yeah, of course. Partners on Studio 60. And it would drive Tommy a little batty uh, uh, and understandably, that I was unable to sustain a bad guy uh, uh, on the show. I was unable to sustain an antagonist. Um, that they would have like one episode of being a bad guy, of being the problem, before I just had to make uh, uh, them a good guy. And you know. Um, uh, it's it's for a lot of reasons. I, I wasn't kidding about Quixotic. It, it's for that reason. Another reason is more personal, uh, which is when I'm doing a, a show, whether it's television, movie, a uh, uh, play, those places be, that becomes my family, uh, and I take morale uh, very seriously. Um, it's like when I'm writing something, there is no social life. There's nothing outside my room, um, uh, and what I'm writing. Uh, and, and it's so nice to be able to start production because suddenly you go from there being nobody to there being 130, uh, uh, people. 
Uh, And uh, so the cast, the crew, they become very important to me. And I don't want the bad guy to be left out. Um, I want them to be part of the family. I need, so they'll become a good guy. Right. Yeah. So it's a very, well, okay. This leads to me to ask you, how did you relate to when you were a kid, like more, how did you fit in and how did you relate to, uh, there are two groups, uh, just knowing your work that I really wanted to ask you this question, uh, because you know, so much of, especially early on in our careers, like we're as writers, uh, you're so fueled by either the, the ways you could or couldn't connect and, and who believed and who didn't believe in a way. Uh, I just wonder, how did you relate to authority and how did you relate to the cool crowd when you were, uh, you know, in middle school and getting into high school? Like, how did those, how did you, yeah, how did you relate uh, to those in two terms groups? Of how I related to authority, I think, I think I related the way authority would like him to relate. Um, uh, you know, my parents, my teachers, yeah, I got in trouble uh, uh, from time to time, but it was in trouble like for, for cutting class so I could hang out in the drama club room, uh, uh, that kind of thing. Because in your work, there are these moments when uh, there's a belief somewhere in an authority figure, in the authority, and when that figure uh, doesn't live up to it, it's both crushing for the the person in opposition, but it's also crushing for the leader. And I just wonder if that was stuff you started noticing early on in your life, what that kind of burden of responsibility could do to people. My father, uh, my father passed away a few years ago at, at, at 95, but I, I think probably all authority, I, I compare all authority figures to him. He was a very gentle, very wise uh, a man who doing the right thing was incredibly important. He was himself was very much a quixotic figure, always kind of had one foot in another century. So That's interesting. Uh, I, I think that r- respect for American institutions um, and respect for authority uh, is baked in to that, to, again, writing idealistically and romantically, as is disappointment uh, uh, and anger yeah. uh, when that authority figure lets you down. It's it really catching that's really smart, Brian. Uh, how in terms of how I related to the cool kids, I wa- I definitely wasn't one of them. Uh, uh, I, I yeah. wasn't one of the cool kids, but I was kind of their mascot. Um, I understand that it 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 has a lot to do with. I went to a public school. I went to Scarsell through the Scarsell school system. It's a highfalutin public school system. You moved to Scarsell for the uh, uh, yes. for the school system. So. Uh, my friends, all of whom were smarter than I am, uh, I mean, in every way that you can measure intelligence, uh, all of them much smarter than I was, nonetheless kept me around. Um, uh, and as a result, I really enjoyed the sound of smart people talking. Same with my family. Uh, everyone in my family is smarter than I am. But at the dinner table, I really enjoyed the sound of uh, smart people talking. When I became a writer, I wanted to imitate that sound. That makes such sense to me. I, I uh, David and I realized somewhere along the way, we're, we're much better when we write about people smarter than we are. There are some writers who are better when they write about a, a demimon where the people are not as smart as they are. But for, for us, even when we're writing about criminals, if they're smarter than us, we feel, uh, I feel very comfortable and and. and alive and excited when I'm writing about people with a greater capacity than I have, for sure. So I understand that. I relate yeah. to that. Um, and listen, some writers write about people who are cooler uh, uh, than they are. Um, uh, some people write about characters who are stronger, faster, they get the girl, um, uh, uh, that kind of thing. I stay in my lane. I, I guess the, the one thing I'll do is I try to make being a nerd sexy. Now you made a decision that you were interested in 
changing the way writers were thought about on some level. But here's what I've been thinking about. If I were doing this in an Aaron Sorkin way and I picked a couple moments that we were going to go deep on, one of them would be like in the success of A Few Good Men. You know, by the way, I, I, David and I had got to at the beginning of our career, we took David Brown to lunch like four times just to get to talk to that incredible man. And hey. he told the story of carrying your play around. It was just great. He loved you and you changed his, uh, you know, uh, at, the, at a point in his life, at a point in his life where he really needed to feel a part of something again, you gave him an incredible gift. You know, he, he would talk about it a lot. Oh, thank you so much. What a thing to say. Um, uh, I loved him. I'll, I'll never forget him. Yeah. And uh, people read about who he read about who he was. He, and just look at pictures of him and just imagine that man taking an interest in you. And it must have felt very special to you, uh, Aaron, when he did. Very special. And it, A Few Good Men was produced by these these legendary producers, David Brown, uh, Robert Whitehead. Uh, Robert Whitehead um, produced the Broadway debuts of Tennessee Williams. William Inge, Arthur Miller, and then in a stunning anticlimax, me. <laughs> um, and, oh, uh, and Lewis Allen and their wives, respectively, are Helen Gurley Brown. Yes. Joe Caldwell and uh, Lou Allen's wife is, uh, she's a fantastic writer. I just knew, I only knew the Helen Gurley Brown part because I only knew David. So, but I didn't their know. Their wives were yeah. considerably more intimidating than they were. Uh, okay. I mean, you liked getting notes from the three men, uh, but when their wives came down to D.C. to the Center, you were terrified. No. It's hard to imagine Helen Gurley Brown giving you notes and having to sort of like ever uh, take issue with, with what, what she uh, uh, said. Not a single one. <laughs> that note would be in the show tomorrow night. Of course. Uh, when... Um, but when you say, you know, you never have Barton Fink moment, this is what I was thinking about earlier today. The pe people uh, are scared in Hollywood, uh, terrified of saying no. And I think that the biggest mistakes happen when you say that, that basically you have this big hit. Hollywood is all over you. The mistakes to me seem to come at yet when people say yes. No's I have found rarely fuck you over when you say no. And I wonder how you right away decided on how you were going to make decisions about how to, uh, you know, move forward. Like, how did you decide which things to go for, who to partner with? You must have been offered a million jobs you said no to. And that's really hard. Like, uh, I learned that lesson, Dave and I did, but it's hard. So can you just talk a little bit about navigating that stuff? Sure. N number one. I was lucky. Uh, I, I did have choices. Uh, I feel like my experience in Hollywood isn't really that instructive to, uh, uh, to young writers coming up who chances are are going to have a different experience. Includes my daughter, by the way, uh, who went to NYU film school in a material breach of the deal I made with God when she was born. She <laughs> yeah. wants to what be a filmmaker. Uh, and I, I just want to say to her, don't, don't look at my footprints. Uh, uh, okay. Right. Um, uh, uh, you're supposed to be busting tables right now. Um, uh, and, and everybody's going to be saying no. So I did have uh, options. Uh, and I think that I made decisions then the exact same way I make decisions now. Do I have a chance? That's all I'm looking for, a chance to write a good movie, okay? Like a baseball player looking for his pitch, uh, okay? The zone, um, yep. It, it, and I learned in Moneyball uh, uh, that uh, the baseball player, on average, he's going to see about 23 pitches uh, per game. Out of those 23 pitches, one of them is going to be what he considers his pitch. It's low and outside. It's high and inside. It's uh, uh, that kind of thing. And they'll swing at it. What what they do with it at that point is is going to determine what you know whether they get to play baseball or not. 
So I, 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 I'm looking for, for my pitch. I'm looking for something I think I can uh, do well with. Uh, I remember early on, uh, one of the things that I was offered, uh, there was a new book that had just come out on J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, it was written by the guy who wrote Helter Skelter, and I can't remember his name. But Coppola and Quincy Jones bought together, bought the film rights to this book. And they asked me, to, I was living in New York at the time, and they asked me to come out to L.A., uh, for a meeting, they wanted me to do the adaptation. So, first of all, I'm having a meeting with Coppola uh, yes. and Quincy Jones. I'm very nervous about that. And uh, I said no to that uh, because, simply because I didn't want to have to make words come out of the mouth of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Uh, right. Uh, now, so it, I was probably chicken. Uh, is the answer. Being chicken from time to time, it's not such a bad thing, you know? No, yes, um, that, that makes uh, sense. No, no, we, uh, we, we, we should take risks. We should take chances. Uh, uh, we should be nervous, uh, but give yourself a break. But it sounds like your fear, but, but Aaron, it sounds like, and this is useful for people, even though you say your experience might not be, but... It sounds to me like the fear, uh, uh, when you would uh, um, grapple with fear, it was about, let's say, your own capacity to do the work or, yeah, I'm not going to swing at this curveball. I'm going to wait for the sinker. But many people allow a different kind of fear to guide them. And that is the fear of saying what a, what, what a, a Hollywood, any kind of level, just as long as they're one notch above the person, they're scared to say no. They're, and I think there's this power in... Uh, saying no uh, to the wrong thing because of, of the way it snowballs, uh, right? Suddenly you're writing something that then will give you that feeling you're talking about of, oh, fuck. Uh -huh. So ha I'm, I'm just wondering, were you always able to disassociate from a, a career ramifications and only make it about the, the work itself? Or how did you train yourself to do that? Because Hollywood's famous for tempting you, right? John Gregory Dunn talks about the monster. Like Hollywood's famous for its ability to tempt. So how did you learn not to give in? Yes, I, for some reason, never did anything because it would be good for my career. Um, That's so important. Uh, I, Say yeah, more about that. Even, yes. even back from the beginning. Uh, and, and I swear to God, this isn't a story about bravery or artistic integrity. Um, I don't know what it's a story about. But my first meeting with David Brown, I had written this play, uh, A Few Good Men. Yes. And what David wanted was to buy the film rights. David had never produced a play before. He wanted to buy the film rights. Right. I was a bartender uh, at the time. I was tending bar in Broadway theaters to, uh, to pay the rent. And I was writing A Few Good Men during, on cocktail napkins during the first act of La Caja Bowl. Um, Amazing. David Brown wants to buy the film rights to my play. Suddenly, I'd be making a movie and with David Brown, and I wouldn't be a bartender anymore. I didn't have money in my uh, bank account. And I said to David in that meeting, the problem is uh, if I dispose of the film rights to the play, the play is uh, all, all I care about was doing the play. Um, right. Uh, I did not aspire to be a screenwriter. Again, it was Mars to me. Uh, but I told David the truth, which is that if you dispose of the screenwrites to the play, the play becomes a lot less attractive to a play producer because they share the money uh, from the screenwrites. And if they're not there. They get less money. And David said, well, how about if I do the play too? And you would think at that point, I'd jump up and down. Uh, but I said, right. have you ever produced a play before? Um, and he said, no, but I'm going to bring in my friend, Robert Whitehead. And that certainly was the name I knew. And we did it. And, and again, I, I, was, I, am not, I am not a ballsy person. Uh, I'm, I, I'm not. And 
I don't know what I was thinking, but but somehow I drove a hard bargain with with David Brown. Right. I, I certainly wasn't thinking about my career. Uh, at that. You wanted to play. You wanted to play. You wanted, wanted to put to a play up. Play. I just wanted to do this play. Um, that's so powerful. That's the most powerful thing. And it's also in all of your work, people who are, I mean, it's quixotic, but it's not just, it's not merely quixotic because you did all this work to, so you knew you had a thing that mattered so much to you. Um, and, and, and it is this temptation thing. And, and, and when people give in to when the town tries to tell somebody what they should be doing, or when you try to calculate that, I've always found it's a road to disaster. You have to go back to like, yeah, what am I curious about? What am I engaged with? What is it that I can see my way into? Uh, if you uh-huh. have a chance to do good work, I think, right? Um, it's so hard to do it when it comes from from the uh, outside uh, sure. to me. Anyway. Sure. Uh, listen, the, the next transition that would happen would be television. And again, the West Wing happened by accident, uh, okay? Um, uh, uh, my agent asked me if I would have lunch with John Wells. Uh, and I knew the name John Wells, uh, as a guy who produced high quality television, China beach, uh, ER. So sure. Uh, but I mean, it's not like I have a TV series to pitch him. I I don't know anything about television. I watch as much television as anybody else. Uh, I don't know anything about television. I don't have anything to pitch him, but yes. Uh, I'll have lunch with him. And the night before that lunch, um, a couple of friends were over at my house watching something on TV uh, and eating dinner. One of them was Akiva Goldsman, uh, who hadn't yet won I love the Akiva. award for uh, I, I love him, yeah. And I tell him that I'm having this lunch with John Wells tomorrow. He said, great, I think you'd be uh, great in television. I said, no, I'm not doing anything i'm just having this lunch with john wells tomorrow and he and i go down to my basement office to sneak a cigarette and he points to the poster of the american president and says you know what would make a good tv series that if it wasn't about the romance between the president and the lobbyists but it was kind of about the senior staffers and i said kiwi i promise you i am not doing a television series i'm just having lunch with the guy and the next day was the lunch and i walked in and um, clearly, John had a different idea of what the lunch was going to be than I did, because yeah. sitting with John were a number of Warner Brothers television executives. Uh, I've had this experience, down. not with John. Yeah. John said, so what do you want to do? And instead of saying, I'm sorry, there's been a terrible mistake. Uh, um, I, I don't have anything to pitch you. I said, I want to do a show about senior staffers at the White House. <laughs> Awesome. And he reached across and said, you've got a deal. And, um, you know, I wrote the pilot and I was thrilled when the pilot got picked up. You know, we always like it when people like what we just wrote. But I knew what it meant because I knew there wasn't any chance either with Sports Night, with the West Wing, with anything else that I was going to end up doing. There wasn't any chance that I wasn't going to write every episode uh, of it. I, I wasn't going to be able to handle somebody else uh, uh, writing. You know, I've been asked, why do you, why don't you let somebody else uh, uh, write an episode from time to time? And my answer was always the same reason Martin Sheen doesn't let somebody else play Bartlett from time to time. Uh, That's hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> this is my part. Right. And so I, and I think that the network sensed and the studio sensed that it would come as a great relief to me if they did not put this show on the air, if I didn't have to do it. So threatening me with, you know, do this or we're not going to put the show on the air just wasn't going to take what they were going to get any No, right. It didn't. You were, yeah, right. You weren't going to react in that way. You were just going to do yeah. this thing or not do it. You were going to do it the way you yeah. saw it or not.
one more question before we talk about Camelot, which is the okay. thing that you're uh, doing next, which uh, is going to be in previews March 9th and open April 13th. And uh, you wrote a new book to to Camelot. But but I do, I, I have this memory, Aaron, of uh, Michael DeLuca's uh, a very old friend of mine. And we've he and I have been through a lot together in our, our lives. And I called Mike and I said, the moment you have this script from Aaron Sorkin, I, I have to read it. I have to read The Social Network. And he's like, nobody has The Social Network. The script just came in. I, I said, I just, I promise, you know you, you know you can trust me. And I, he sent it to me long before you guys were making it, like right as you, after you'd finished it. And I sat, it was a moment where I needed, uh, as you know, you go through these careers, I needed to read something that was perfect. I didn't know that's what I needed, but I did. And right. I think that's one of the two best screenplays I've ever read. And uh, But here's the thing. I sat at my kitchen counter, Aaron, and I, I read that thing. And it is as, as vivid to me as the first time I read Sun Also Rises or something. I'm not equating it or anything like that. I'm just saying that this this moment, and I wrote you a, I, I wrote you a note. I didn't know you, but I, I got your email and I wrote you a note. And you were very gracious in, 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 in writing me back. But my question is, and I remember you know reading the first opening nine pages and just saying like, fuck yes, you know, and this is the gift of still staying a fan was I, I was like, fuck yes, this is doable. You can fucking do this if you want to. You can write exactly what you want to write in exactly the way you want to write it. And, uh, but my question is the following. Do you know when you're working at the very top of your game, does it occur to you? Like, did you know when you wrote that opening scene that you'd found a voice a style to tell this particular story, this character had come to life. Uh, uh, were, were you aware of the fact that, right, like you talk about baseball players, they have certain seasons that are exquisite. Did you know you were working at almost like an, a new a new level uh, or that it was incredibly pure and, and true? Uh, or was it just another day at the office for, for, for you? Uh, yeah. First of all, thank you very much. It means the world to me coming from you. I really do appreciate it. It's funny because the social network is like the, I, in many ways, it's the least like my style uh, uh, that I've ever written. It's in that it's not romantic uh, and it's not idealistic, but nonetheless, it was my pitch uh, to hit and to answer your question. Yes. Once I'd written the first scene, uh, you know, with Jesse and Rooney Mara, uh, I um, I felt good. Uh, uh, I felt good. I woke up every day knowing what I was writing that day, um, uh, which is fantastic feeling. Most days you wake up, you don't know what you're going to do. You, you end up not doing anything. It's you know I yeah. tell people it's not the writing that's hard. It's the not writing uh, uh, that that makes it crazy. Funny thing about that first nine pages. We, uh, the, the studio and the producer was Scott Rudin. They had decided I should direct it. And, and then at the last minute, we all just said, uh, hey, listen, before I commit to this thing that I don't know if I can do, um, I, uh, let's send it to David Fincher. He, he passes on everything. Awesome. Let's just let him pass on this because we know how great he'd be uh, for it. And, and then I'll talk to you about directing um, it, it was sent to David that afternoon, a couple of hours later, I got an email from him saying, Hey, Aaron, it's David. I'm going to direct the social network. Can I come over? Um, oh, that's the story that he tells is that he was reading the opening scene and he said, I swear to God, if this girl doesn't punch him in the face on the next page, I'm putting it down. <laughs> Uh, and of course, Rooney has, yeah. to, you know, it's going to be because, yeah, oh, she punches him. Yeah. She punches him in the yeah. face. It happens <laughs> for sure. So why, uh, why, why are you, why Camelot talk about it? Yeah. Uh, sure. uh, what made you decide to do this? Um, write a new book for something, uh, and to uh, do this now, like, why'd you decide that this is the thing you're, you're into at this moment? Um, the director Bartlett share, Bart share, uh, who directed, to Kill a Mockingbird, the last play I wrote uh, off yeah. of Broadway. Uh, he is a great director of musicals, and he, for Lincoln Center, for uh, a gala fundraiser, 
he did a concert version of Camelot with Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, playing King Arthur. Uh, and after it was over, Bart and Lin were talking and they were talking about the, the book for Camelot is kind of problematic. Um, uh, and Bart said, but there's something good there. What should I do? And it was Lynn uh, who said, get Aaron to uh, uh, to write a new book. And I'm, I'm glad he made that suggestion. I love musicals. Uh, I have ever since Man of La Mancha uh, when I was five. Uh, and so I've, I've written a new book uh, for Camelot. It's the same score, but it's a, it's a new book. There have been a thousand versions of uh, The Legend of King Arthur. But in all of them, uh, there is um, there's magic. Uh, uh, okay. Um, uh, that Arthur can be turned into a hawk by Merlin, who's a, who lives backwards. Um, uh, there's, you know, an enchanted forest uh, uh, and that kind of thing. And as I said a little while ago, I like when people do extraordinary things, people who are humans. Um, once you have a superpower, yes. once you have a magic wand, it doesn't seem that hard to do the uh, the super thing. I want everyone to feel like, yes, we can uh, do that. So I wanted to write a, a version of The Legend of King Arthur uh, with no uh, magic in it at all. They even question the origin story of pulling the sword uh, out of the stone. Um, it's, uh, it, it's a real king. It takes place at a real moment uh, in history. Uh, it's uh, there's there's a lot more dialogue uh, in it. And no, we'll no surprise there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> see my and, and, um, and Philip. And speaking of Lin Lin Manuel Miranda, Philip Sue is in it, right? Philip Sue is Guinevere. Um, uh, uh, it, it, it's a great cast. Um, Andrew Burnham is Arthur. Uh, Jordan Donica is uh, is Lance. Uh, it's a fantastic cast. There's sword fighting. Uh, I finally got I to write something to that's sword fighting. Uh, and uh, I hope people like it. I'm sure that we'll uh, love it. I, I can't wait to see it. All right, last question, and then I'll... Uh, though I obviously could ask you questions for, for days. Uh, who are you writing for? Like, you know, Salinger wrote for The Woman on the Porch listening to the ball game. Hemingway wrote for Dead Writers. Who are who are you writing for? Who's your ideal audience? What are you picturing? Uh, yeah, that, that's a really great question uh, because uh, I what I can't do is is picture a million people. Um, uh, I can't picture that in my head. So um, I'm my father, uh, a small group of my friends. Um, that's who I'm writing for. Uh, and then who you I know hope, will get the joke. I hope that enough other people. I uh, like it that I get to keep doing. That makes uh, uh, total uh, that makes total sense to me, and it's a great way to look at it. Actually, you know, just a small targeted uh, a group who might you get on the wavelength, and who also, uh, if you miss that target, it lets you know you're not you haven't done it. Right. There. Certainly, what you don't want to do is try to figure out what it is everybody wants uh, and give it to them because um, okay. you. Everybody doesn't want the same thing and you'll never be able to uh, uh, give it to them. And it's a bad recipe for storytelling. Aaron Sorkin, thanks for your time. Thanks for the work, man. Um, it, it means a lot to me. And the, thanks for telling me that and I'll tell Levine now that uh, you've Please. been watching Super Pumped. That's really, uh, that's really great. And uh, really I'll be out there it, at Camelot. All right. Thanks, man. Be well. Take it easy, buddy. Bye.